Everything we do is learning. There is turbulence in everything that we do. That situation has sparked what I believe will be the major cog in United's turnaround over time, is that it got our collective stuff together. 2018 was a rough year for United Airlines and for the company CEO, Oscar Munoz. After a video of a passenger being forcibly removed from a flight went viral, Munoz says the company took a step back and reevaluated its priorities. In an interview with an MBA student at Stanford Graduate School of Business, Munoz discussed this shift and the importance of speaking publicly on personal issues. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us as our first View from the Top speaker uh, of the year. As you can see by all the students here, we are very excited to have you. Um, so Dean Levin mentioned uh, the fact that you were born in Mexico um, and you grew up as the eldest of nine siblings in a working class family in Southern California. How has that experience shaped you? Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I was probably, uh, well, I was one of the original dreamers, right? Before they had cool names for it. Um, but let's be clear, they did have names for it. They weren't very, uh, <laughs> they weren't very nice. Um, I, I, think, um, I think environment, um, I think how you grow up, who you grow up with, has a meaningful impact on who you are as a person. There's a lot of you in this room. You've all had very different upbringings. Um, and uh, I know from my heritage in particular, I think the Latino uh, population is one that's very family-oriented, uh, humble in general. Um, and again, more importantly, just loyal sometimes to a fault. And uh, that has all shaped me. And then the hard work aspect of that. Um, and so, you know, it's just those, those were my foundations. I didn't know to do anything else. And, you know, the concept of entitlement when you're uh, an original dreamer, not particularly strong in your world. So uh, mm. it, it did shape me who I am. And it does affect how I make decisions to this very day. Um, I think I make a lot of decisions. And we as a corporation make a lot of decisions that uh, are founded on some of that upbringing that I have. And like some of the students in the audience today, you were also the first in your family to go to college. And you were deciding between some great universities, the Stanford of the East, as Dean Levin adequately put it, and USC. You chose USC. Were the Boston winters too cold? Well, on the, on, the, on the West Coast, there was a better football program at the time. <laughs> Clearly not the case now. Um, uh, no, you know what? I, it, the story behind that is, again, being a first generation, which I hear some of you in the room are first generation undergrads. Raise your hand. Huge respect, guys. It's, uh, it's a big responsibility for you and your families. But uh, not knowing. I mean, literally, the way I, chose, I decided that I had to go to college, I was walking down the hallway late to a class, and Mrs. Duckworth, one of our high school counselors, stopped me and said, are you Oscar? And it's like, oh, crap, I'm in trouble. Because <laughs> why else do high school counselors stop you, right? <laughs> we had just taken those PSATs or whatever, and she goes, where are you thinking of going to college? And my answer was, honest to goodness, what's a college? I, I, my, my upbringing, my, my neighborhood, it wasn't just the Latino thing. It was just, just where we lived. It just wasn't something you did. You went to high school, you got married, you had kids, and you lived happily ever after. 
And that was great. But this offered me uh, insight and a view, and to this day, I hold her in high degree of respect and, uh, and give her a lot of, for taking me down that path. She helped me with applications and all sorts of things to get there. And that's how I decided to go to college. Now, the choice of where and where, uh, that was just, my story of when I went to the Adler School was just a hilarious joke. I mean, talk about two country rubes. I grew up in Huntington Beach. I was a surfer kid, right? I mean, imagine Harvard Yard and somebody in shorts, flip-flops, a t-shirt, and hair down to here <laughs> with a blue-collar dad with a, uh, just, we were just, even then at a young age, I knew that you have to find your way, find your spot, and go there, and that just didn't feel like the way. And no regrets, you know, it was, SC was great. Yeah. And you had a heart attack 38 days after taking over as the CEO of United. Uh, I love this. Got to cover the personal. Yeah. Got to cover the personal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was interesting. And you then had a heart. By you the way, as a career thing, I don't recommend that. Yeah. <laughs> and then you would have a heart transplant on your birthday in early 2016. Yeah, so this Saturday night, uh, this last, a couple of Mondays ago, the 15th of October, marked the third year that uh, my third anniversary of having the actual heart attack. Um, and we always, we don't celebrate it as much, but it's, it gets raised. Um, it's an emotional day um, because you realize what you have versus what, it, what could have been, right? Not be here. Um, this coming Saturday night, uh, my, uh, my transplant doctor, my cardiologist, and some of my very close friends, and of course my family, were celebrating. Elton John has gone his last tour and so we're celebrating something on that regard. But uh, yeah, the 30, that was, that was crazy. Uh, life is in all our plans and all the things that you're doing are wonderful. I'm telling you, I know you hear all these axioms and all these superlatives and broad natures about live life to its fullest and you know, bolo and yolo and all that. <laughs> um, you know what, there's a degree of truth to those things. You never know what's gonna happen and that was my, that was my situation, but yeah, 37 days, and then the transplant on my on my uh, uh, on my birthday. Uh, there's a degree of fortunate, of blessings, of being lucky uh, that are important in life, and I am all of those. And uh, damn glad to be here, as they say. Yeah. So, how have your perspectives and behaviors changed day to day? They really haven't. Uh, I think I do appreciate life in general more, and there's uh, moments of of sort of personal emotion and drama when I celebrate anniversaries like that, uh, or why I have to tell a story, or I have to visit someone in the hospital that's going through something like that. Um, it's, a, it's not only a physical issue with you personally, it also is emotional, and then it impacts all your loved ones. And it's important, I think, to keep a very positive attitude. Mm -hmm. So all of that, I do a lot more. I go to hospitals literally all over the world, and I'll see folks and talk to them. Just by the nature of what I do and my usual energetic rambling self people look it's like hey he looks normal and when they know what i've been through it's a it's a bit of a, a motivator for people to get out of their uh, out of their funk um because i'm telling you doctors are very conservative and they'll tell you all of these things you shouldn't do uh, like i shouldn't be in any enclosed spaces with a lot of people airplanes um <laughs> I shouldn't be, you know, hanging around with a bunch of groups. It's a, everything I'm not supposed to do, I couldn't possibly live without doing. And that's my choice, and my doctors generally keep up with me, but uh, it is an important part of, again, back to the question you asked earlier with regards to, you know, who you are as a person. Um, it, it does, it, things like that sure shape you and change you, but who I am, how I approach things, 
that had nothing to do with it. And now you ask that all my loved ones, like, have I changed? And they're like, no, you're still the same. That crazy person that I've always been. Yeah. So I want to talk about sort of how your personality and that, that thinking and that process led you to take the role at United. So when you took over as CEO, you, in, you inherited a company that was still struggling to overcome some of the challenges from the merger with Continental. And it's not common for airline CEOs to come from outside of the industry. Why did you believe it was the right job for you? I think it's back to my fundamental foundation of who I am and what I think I can do and advice I give to all of you. You really have to know who you are. It's the old know thyself thing. And, and I always say, know thyself, comma, and then I write a really big really with an exclamation point. Not the, not the self that you think and you want to project to others that you are. The real self. The real self in, in the middle of the night and your mind's going, we are all petty and jealous and greedy and angry, all of those things. Those are pure, wonderful human qualities. The more you understand yourself, the more you know your predilection in those areas, I'm telling you, it's the best of yourselves when you know that. I think part of maturity, I think part of growing up, I think of part of having success, you're able to have these conversations. And I'm telling you, know yourself, really, and when you do. And so back to the application of me, I, I know what I love, I know what I like. And I love the work that we are doing at the railroad. But it was a railroad. It was a B2B, it was freight. It was very industrial, very labor-oriented. We taken, we had great runs, um, as the dean mentioned, with regards to what we've done financially. But there was always something missing for me. And I missed the things from my Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola days branding mechanism, marketing, connecting with other humans. I thought that was really important. And more importantly, being on the board, I saw some of the frustration in our, in our employee base. I saw some of the frustration with our customers. And I certainly saw where, again, back to knowing myself, what do I get the most energy from? Well, it is capturing the hearts and minds of many, many folks in a large organization. And I'm thinking, I can do that. And then I had a couple board members who were really instrumental in Another sort of initiative uh, objective of mine in my life is how do you make a difference in this world? And what, from what platform can you make it? And we all have different platforms and we can all do different goods in different areas, but taking a big brand like United, driving a turnaround, having success, gives you a platform to really advocate, to really do good things for the community, do good things for the environment, for, you know, you name it. Uh, I now have a voice and a platform that I wouldn't have without that. And one of our board members, a guy named Walter Isaacson, you guys may have heard of him, um, arguably the best living American writer today, he called me and for two hours he just berated me about taking this role because I was literally going to be the CEO at this next company in a, in like in days. Um, and he's like, you have the opportunity, Oscar, to change the face of American capitalism. And that was like, you know, that's only something something like an author of his renown would say. And I'm like, well, dang, I was like, I was hoping to get free flights or something. <laughs> um, but when he said that, and it's actually sparked a lot of conversations that I've had, not only with my employees, but in general, I like to say things like, we're building a, a company that's not only profitable, but principled. And that you can be both. And more importantly, that by being principled, you can actually be even more profitable. And as you guys get into your careers, you're starting mid, um, or beginning to reemerge from school back into the work, 
uh, it is becoming an ever-increasing level of attention from the new generation that you bring, right? It's not just the product. It's not the what you do, like we do in Perform, but it's also the how you do it. And I think I can do both. And, and so that was an opportunity that I think I had at United that I may or may not have had really at CSX, because you probably wouldn't have me here if I was at CSX. Like, just saying, I think. <laughs> no, well, Dr. Parker knows me, so maybe I would be. <laughs> I want to come back to the platform discussion in a little bit, but the, the phrase that you use, the, the road to changing the face of American capitalism, that road um, hasn't been the smoothest road, aside from the personal challenges. Turbulence, we call it. Turbulence, uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, when, there were a series of incidents last year, including the forced removal of a passenger on a United flight, and separately the deaths of, of animals on, on uh, United flights. And um, I guess what I'm curious about is what lessons, and you've publicly acknowledged and apologized for this uh, and, and on many occasions, but for the students, what lessons have you learned through that experience? Um, first and foremost, uh, and when we talked beforehand with Liz and, and Patrick, I said, there's nothing off the table. Ask me whatever the heck you want, period. It's like there's nothing that I'm, anything about because everything we do is learning there is turbulence in everything that we do that situation has sparked what i believe will be the major cog in united's turnaround over time is that it got our collective stuff together about we we are such a big company with big operational requirements where safety and security have to be our topmost objectives right um it has to be Policies and procedures are rigorous, they're demanding, and more importantly, they're constrictive and they don't give you a lot of room for what we are trying to build now, which is a caring culture. And so in that particular instance, the learning was we let our policies and procedures get in the way of doing the damn right thing, right? Who in their right mind would bring in police? And we all saw the video, right? I mean, 500 million views in China. <laughs> I was out visiting and I'm like, that's, boy, that doesn't teach you something, it does. Um, but it was a catalyst to what we've established uh, from that point forward. We've established so many more customer-oriented. Our philosophy and our next journey after we've done what we've done so far is I want to make you, we want to make you feel better about flying us. What does that mean? And I put that in your spreadsheet. You can't, but you can. Because if you think about how we built this company to this day since I've arrived, the first thing I did is I regained the trust of my employees. That was my first big saying to Wall Street. And Wall Street went just apoplectic. Like, what the hell does that mean? He's from outside the industry, doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And the first thing he says, he's going to be nice to people. You know, and, and so what is that going to, how is that, what's the return on that? Well, you fast forward a year later, our operations are, we settled our union contracts, our operations are doing best. We've led the last two years in, in on-time uh, originations. We're getting our planes out on time. And we haven't invested a huge amount of money. We've invested in human capital, right? And getting those trusts. So build the trust of employees, get that right. Build your operations, then build a strategy, a business strategy, which all of you love, right? We're all, that's the sexy part. That sexy part, it don't work without the human capital underneath it. And that's another thing that we always forget is that, trust me, in that large an organization that's so spread all over, the, all over God's green earth, literally, because we're a global company, you have to get that right and then build from that. And so um, that's the foundation for the things that we've been doing. And this next journey is about the customer and making you feel better. And that is probably be the most arduous and difficult thing because it's hard to measure. Uh, you tell me every day. 
and you can tell me, I mean, NPS, it's such a hard thing because if your coffee wasn't the right temperature, if somebody sitting next to you had a dog that was the size of Bosnia, I mean, um, I'm gonna get in trouble for saying Bosnia. Nothing against Bosnia. <laughs> um, but there's, I mean, all of you are frequent flyers. You all have your views about what's right. We are, we are chatting in the back about if I ever write a book, I'm gonna title it, there is no good deed that goes unpunished in this business. Because if I do something for customers, Wall Street gets upset. If I do something for Wall Street, employees and customers get upset if I do something for, so it's always this constant thing and you're a demanding, wonderful crowd. And so my, my thing I would tell you is that people like to catch you in these kind of conversations, especially on national TV. Well, Oscar, don't you think the customer is always right? And I said, you know what, unfortunately in this day and age, safety and security are paramount. And to the extent that we can, after taking care of those two, we wanna put you at the center of everything we do. And that's a difficult task, but you have to understand, safety and security are key. I'd love to have you just show up at the airport and get on any damn plane you want. Yeah, come on in, get on. Southwest does that, I think, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. He's gonna come after me. <laughs> um, so, uh, we've, we're, gosh, we've got so much to do still. Yeah, and how do you balance that, that, what you just discussed? So investing in a better customer experience while maintaining the cost discipline required for profitability in the short term, expectations from Wall Street and a, and a highly competitive industry. How do you balance that? See, this is where, these are the things that um, you need, you, we need to learn more of, even at this relatively young age. So I call that debate NPS, you know, a net promoter versus EPS. Because in our world, that's the trade-off. I mean, it's sometimes you just have this decision where, do I put more seats in the airplane? Well, you don't like that, but it, you know, density and overhead absorption and all the things that we know uh, make sense for us. So how do we balance those two things? Well, you, they're trade-offs. And more importantly for us at United, what we're doing is we're listening to you, our customers, like what's important to you? Does this matter to you? Does it really, how do we do this? And then when we roll things out, we test it with a lot of different folks. We just introduced something called better boarding. And you're like, how boring is that, right? Boarding, really? Well, it's one of the highest stress points. How do I know that? I asked you. And it's going like gangbusters. Well, you went from five to two, and everybody's gone from two to three and a half. To, everybody's done this all the time. What they haven't done, the secret sauce, and why ours is working, is I spent, my team spent eight months working with customers and with gate agents who do what? Oh yeah, they do this for a living. Every single day, they know how things board and what works and what doesn't. So our really smart people with the flows and the regressions and the statistical analysis that says this or that, the first sign of, uh, the, 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 a plan first falls apart at the sign of the enemy. And for us, the enemy is our own people. It's like, this is stupid, this doesn't work. Why don't we try this, why don't we try that? And so the concept of involving folks, is it, it requires patience. It requires you putting your ego and your intelligence off in the side, right? You're all gonna come out of here with a Stanford degree. God, you guys have had a massive leg up, but if you go back in your workplaces, what I call all asses and elbows, right? Elbowing people out of the way, because you're so damn smart. I'm telling you, one of the things that we learn uh, as we gain more experience, one of the, the saddest things that you have is middle to senior middle managers who lament the fact that their careers have not gone like they planned. And they look around at everybody else. I'm so smart, I'm so capable, no one recognizes that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, it is a meritocratic world out there. 
People notice quality, people notice leadership, people reward it to this very day. There's pockets with bias and, and, and racial things and, and, and sex, all that stuff, no question. But in general, as a whole, people that get ahead because you made an effort to get ahead. And that's in, in all those axioms about treating others and not having an agenda and working, all that sort of thing. But it's the saddest thing when people are at that age and, and they just haven't figured out the EQ side of thing. Um, you have to make yourself the kind of person that people are willing to come up to and provide advice. And I run a really big company, and you'd be appalled at some of the conversations that people have with me when someone's upset. They will yell at me. They will they'll stand there and they'll do this. And I am loving every minute of it because at the end of the day, sharing is caring, <laughs> right? And if you're yelling at me, I, I still have a shot at you. It's like, uh, and, and that has made the biggest difference in our company because they know they can have that output. That, and then once you do that, you, capture, you begin to capture hearts and minds. And then when you ask them to, we ask them to do it, when we ask ourselves to do things, uh, it's a lot easier way of doing it. So it's a long question to a one I don't even remember what you asked. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. So I do have to admit to the audience that I am a United Loyalist and status, status holder. Um, I, I know, I know. Uh, I know firsthand how emotive... He's from Boston. The first thing I watched is like, why do you have a hyphenated last name? What is the <laughs> that, was, that was actually his first question to me. <laughs> Another trick to interviews, always turn the table. Yes, exactly. Um, I do know firsthand how emotive and even tribal people can be about their airlines. Um, however, some have had, as we've discussed, some very negative experiences with United, and some have even stated that they would, quote unquote, never fly the airline again. Why should they reconsider? Um, a funny thing, um, so I, I've, over time you get to know people everywhere, and some of the SNL cast I become friendly with. Uh, and everybody knows Weekend Update, right? If you go back to the time when they, uh, they reported on the Dow incident, that's the, the, the flight where we had to, uh, uh, that flight. Um, <laughs> earlier in the week, that somebody had found a scorpion in one of our overhead bins. And so uh, he leads, Yoast leads with this. And today in the news, United Airlines have you know, found a, you know, a, a scorpion in the thing. And he's like, and then he kind of smiles and he's thinking, but honestly, that wasn't the worst news of the week for United. And they were brief and men just mentioned it. They were very nice to us. They just mentioned it briefly, as they do for everyone else. And then he stares into the camera and he goes, I will never fly. And he just with a serious face, pause, pause, until I have a good price to wherever I want to go, then of course I'll fly there. <laughs> um, there's a guy that used, to, that used to run Spirit Airlines, which... He, he, would, <laughs> he would carry around these 12 letters, and he'd open one of the letters, and it'd be somebody saying, I'll never fly this airline. Yeah, none of this. And, uh, and the, the remaining 11 letters were from the same customer over the course of two or three years. Uh, the economic impact of the price of things makes, makes a difference to all of us. There's no question. You may not fly someone again, whatever. People are very emotional about this business. It's very personal to them, which is why our purpose and mission is about connecting people, not the physical connection from point A to point B, but connecting you as a human being to something that's really important to you somewhere else. And that's the foundation of our shared purpose. Then again, back to my previous comment, involved 90,000 people telling me, telling us what was important to them. So connecting people in that more, you know, 
personal way, and then uniting the world, which is a, an interesting thing that came out because it's really led me and us to be able to do a lot of, uh, you know, take stands in, in DACA, Dreamers, the you know, separation of children, uh, gun control, and some of the issues that survive that. Because, you know, when you have a shared purpose that's uniting the world, that your 90,000 employees had told you, it gives you a responsibility to take action and, and take a, a position on some of those things. So, yeah. So I want to transition to speaking about some of the management and leadership challenges and, and some of the things that you've done recently. Um, many do not realize that the flight attendant crews from the United Continental merger continued to work separately for over eight years. That is until earlier this month when you successfully finalized the deal with the unions. How did you succeed in reaching a deal after so long? And can you share some negotiating tips with us? <laughs> So the uh, actual contractual deal was signed a couple years ago right. um, when we agreed on the contract. Implementing the contract was what, what just transpired. Uh, you got 26,000 people, flight attendants, who are the front, the face, the, you know, the brand to some degree, coming from two different cultures. All of you will study mergers and acquisitions, we'll do all the math, the synergies, how costs can be done, more, all the things that we like to do. Um, the human integration of different cultures uh, along with the systems that support them are very critical on how, how you handle those and how you manage them because there's so much more pride and so much more history and so much more resistance to change uh, in those kind of mergers and integrations. So it took us a while. The contract had been going on for five years and when I came, it's just my style. I had, I had uh, this is where history will always uh, follow you. Uh, so I had spent 10 plus years at a railroad where we were largely union oriented. And unions tend to be headed by the same people across on a national level. When a union from one company, when you switch to another company, calls the union people at the other company and say, that's a good guy, he's going to work with you, huge, huge benefit to starting the calculation. So I don't make that up. I don't do that. It's just the way I work. And the way you work with people, you know, my dad was a union meat cutter. My, my uncle was headed the IBEW in California. It started unions in, in Los Angeles literally when there was people were getting killed for organizing things. So I grew up in that environment. I've seen the value of it to some degree. I also see some of the deficiencies as we move forward. But nevertheless, it's the world they've chosen. And you have to admire, you have to respect it. More importantly, you have to acknowledge it, right? Seek first to understand, then to be understood. And we don't do that. Oh, you're a union guy, you clearly don't have my best interest in mind. You know what? Try it. And, and I think once you build that little bit of that history, it made a difference when we came to United. And we settled that five-year contract in one year. And it wasn't usurious. It wasn't, you know, giving everything away. We had, it was a very fair contract for both, which is the way it should be, right? A fair day's pay for a fair day's work. And the only thing that needs to be negotiated is what a fair day and what is fair pay. <laughs> that, ladies and gentlemen, there's many books written on that, but having a relationship to start the conversation is much easier than not, in my mind. So being located in Silicon Valley, Stanford students are often drawn into the startup and the technology companies in this area after graduation. But why should we consider working for a more established company such as United instead? Um, well, again, back to the concept of know thyself. What makes you tick? If you're just following, uh, and again, I have to be careful because my ch children have all become bankers and consultants. Um, <laughs> not that anybody wants to do that here. <laughs> um, and tech is a great space. And if you're good at it, you really love it, and it's something you want to do, and it really 
make, motivates you and gets you going, go do that thing. The sooner you learn that what you love and what you want to do and what makes you passionate and you, and you go do that, I'm telling you, you're young. You have lots of life left. You go do something just for the money, just because what's your friend, that's just currently what's hot. You'll wake up sometime in that career and say, oh, dang it, I wish I had done something else. So again, back to nobody knows yourself better than, her, than you. And so think hard about those things. And if that's what you want to do, wonderful, go do it. It's all great training ground. But sometime between, it's kind of like choosing a major in undergrad, right? Go try all the different things. But at some point in time, the school calls you, the dean calls you and say, dude, you got to pick. Um, <laughs> Life won't tell you that. They'll let you, life will let you go on. But at some point in time, your personal well-being, how you reflect with the people around you, how, you, uh, how you're productive to your community, and more importantly, how you interact with your loved ones, and you all have loved ones, it makes a meaningful difference if you're doing something you really like. I, I love what I do. It's a, I won't say it's a very difficult job because of all the factors that we face all over the world. There's not a single exogenous factor that doesn't affect an industry like us. We're always working with that. But you're right. My foundation is the energy that I derive from my people, and that's what I love to do. It's why I chose to come here from CSX. It's why I choose to continue. It's why I chose to come back from, dang, I almost died, right? I mean, who comes back from a heart transplant to do this stuff? Well, again, it's just who I am, and it's good to know that because you'll have decisions in your life that require you to make some tough decisions, you can go read all the books and talk to all your wonderful professors, all the advisors, all the counseling you could possibly get, but man, it always comes back to you. <laughs> and so it's a great, it's a, and it's great. You're, you're great. You're the best at it about making decisions for yourself. But this is still Silicon Valley, so I do have to ask a question about the future. You have worked in travel and transportation for many years now, and my question is, what do you think will be different about the transportation industry, say, 20 years from now? Oh, gosh. It'll be completely radically changed, right? I mean, from, I mean, I, I just, I hosted uh, uh, Dara from Uber and a guy named Dennis Mullenberg who runs Boeing. You guys know Dara. I'm Dara and Oscar. We have, there's, there's some first name people out there. And so, um, <laughs> mostly because Dara's last name is literally unpronounceable. <laughs> um, but I had them both at an event down in San Diego. We talked about the future of transportation. And when you hear them talk about you know, airplanes that fly in space to literally flying cars, they both, one's building the software, one's building the actual uh, vehicle that can do that. So the Jetsons, if you're, somebody remember those cartoons a long time ago? I've read about them. I, I just, somebody. <laughs> um, and so there's just so much uh, technology that's going to be in our future. Um, I think the way I approach technology is twofold. One, whatever's new, whatever's hot, whatever's applicable to us, let's roll. I mean, we've got Palantir here in the Valley. We came out and visited about a year and a half ago and interviewed all sorts of different folks with all these great technology, you know, big data, artificial, until all those wonderful buzzwords they can, they can do that. I'm looking for things that are relevant. It's, I call it relevant innovation or relevant technology that's relevant to you, my customer, today. 50 years from now, 10 years from now, there'll be something more. I don't want to wait for you for 5 or 10 or 50 years to be my customer. I want you to be my customer now. So what is it that I can do that's really healthy and worthwhile for you? So I have things. Uh, we know so much about you in a non-creepy way. Um, <laughs> I know all your flights. I know whether you've been upgraded. I know, what, I know how your flight went. And so I have an app and that, that when I sit next to you, 
I know all that. I know your last five flights. And I know everybody is sitting around me before I get on an aircraft, I check everyone. And when I see it's red, yellow, green, it's simple as that. And it says, I say, oh, here's a, here's a red. Hey, you, you flew from San Francisco back to Chicago uh, a month and a half ago, sir. Um, sorry about that. Uh, you know, do you want to tell me? So I, I bring it up. Um, and they're like, you know, like, whoa, what, you know, I don't even remember the flight, but not, and they'll, but you start a conversation, but the fact that it's that personalization that's important. So take that conversation and make it even better. So I know all of that about you. So why can't I call you if you're a traveling road warrior uh, person, why can't I call you on a Thursday evening when you're leaving on a Friday? And what are the stressors, right? Traffic, parking, security, upgrades, all of those things, right? Are you on time, all of that sort of stuff. Well, I have enough data to be able to proactively call you on a Thursday afternoon and say, hey, ma'am, um, I've seen that over the last five flights, we haven't been able to upgrade you. You're a valued customer. I want you to know that A, uh, you have your upgrade. B, and I'm working with TSA on this, uh, I, well, I'm gonna get you through security in a different line. And by the way, because we're partners with the, the Lyft provider, Lyft, Uber, and Lyft, uh, here's a code for your Uber. So you have a car, you have security, and you have your upgrade the night before you're going on a flight. How better do you sleep that night? Now, again, for all of you that travel a lot, um, you'll, you'll recognize that. But that, to me, is relevant technology. And that's how you put art, you know, all this big data and management thereof. How do you put it to use? Not for this grandiose, how do I extract more revenue from you and all that? which is important, and we'll do that concurrently, but more importantly, I want you <laughs> to business school, right? <laughs> um, but, but again, it's a, but it's a win-win, right? And so you, that's, when I say I want you to feel better about flying with me, that's something that you'll feel better, because the next thing's like, hey, listen, you know, I was kind of pissed because I haven't been upgraded, and all of a sudden, they called ahead of time, knew what was going on, helped me out, so that's a vision that we're work, working towards. Yeah. And so technology is a great deal, uh, a great advantage in all those places. You just, it has to scale. We are massive, yeah. just so big, it's not even funny. So has, we have to make sure we do, um, we're able to work with some. And the Palantir uh, Association was great. We've got Apple and Microsoft and everyone else, but we're always looking for someone else too. Um, and uh, yeah. and so it's exciting to see what, what the excitement that's going on around here. So you mentioned your platform the platform that you've been given as the CEO of United, and I, I want to transition to talking about some of the larger uh, things out in the world that you have, have played a role in having conversations about, including the fact that United is a leader in its efforts, efforts to reduce carbon emissions and recently committed to having its emissions by 2050. But a recent UN climate report suggests that we only have until 2030 before we start to see the catastrophic and irreversible effects of warming. So. <laughs> You're a leader, but can and should you do more well, to reduce an offset? I'll start with offset. a humorous approach, and back to my SNL. Uh, yeah. Michael Shea said this, he goes, have you heard, I mean, the, the planet's dying in 10 years, and then he says, why don't I care? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we don't. Uh, and uh, he goes on to say humorously that, because you can't say everything's gonna die, because no one cares about everything. They care about things that are own. And he makes them, uh, you should watch it, it's pretty funny. Um, I'll tell you my evolution on this, um, personally and really as a company. First and foremost, we burn four billion, you know, <laughs> gallons of jet fuel, not regular fuel, jet fuel, a year. So. Carbon footprint, dude, I have a giant, you know, size whatever shoe in that regard. I also 
made a business and a lot of money for a lot of investors moving fossil fuels, uh, coal, for instance, in the, in the railroad space. And at that time, it was sort of my bias to disregard or disprove the concept of global climate change and, and any risk thereof. Um, I've evolved, not because I, I worked, I mean, I still have a big carbon footprint. I just see what we are doing as a planet. It, 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 we can't, you just can't deny the fact that the, how we're, uh, whether it's industrialization, whether it's all the different things that we're doing are creating a, a, a bigger risk. This planet will burst at some point in time. I don't know when it is. So the questions to Al Gore and my conversations with him are simple. He says, do you believe in climate change? Can you do something about it? And will you do something about it? And so for me, and I think for our company, it, do we believe it's real? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, you know, I can argue the cyclical nature of global warming and cooling over many centuries and all of that, but the difference is man-made emissions are becoming more prevalent and more impactful. So yes, I believe it and we believe it as a company. Can you do something about it? It's like, oh, I don't know. We burn four billions of fuel. Uh, can we really do something? It's like, yes, you can. So biofuels are at, are at their infancy, but we're the leading folks to invest in companies that manufacture it. We just flew from, from here to Zurich uh, a couple weeks ago on a, on a fossil fuel. It, is, it isn't quite scale or economic enough, but our 2050 mission, to your question, is a, it just, it's going to take a while. Yeah. And But you, it, it, will you do something about it? I, we are choosing that that's going to be done. And what's cool about it, because California anointed surfing as their capital, their, the, the state uh, sport, um, which is, I do, did a lot of that, so I was very happy. So our president, Janet Lampkin, is here, had a great idea. Why don't we fly surfboards free? And as a, it's a complete different gesture. Guess who picks up on that? The there you go, somebody. <laughs> I know for the skiers, we'll have to work on that. <laughs> um, but it's, it has all these, so it, it's, it's, got, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a long way away, but you gotta start somewhere. And by me doing it in this industry, hopefully it folks, a lot of heavy carbon footprint companies to begin to ask the question, do you believe, can you do something, and will you do something about it? Yeah. Immigration has also been a hot button issue, and you have been vocal. You have come out in support of DACA. You also refuse to let the U.S. government fly immigrant children who had been separated from their families at the border on any United flight. What responsibilities do executives of public companies have when it comes to taking a stand on these social and political issues? Um, I mentioned the profitable but principled earlier. Uh, my opinion, um, and I do it on the basis of uh, the strength of what we've been doing in the business and uh, creating shareholder value, creating customer value, uh, and on that foundation of accomplishment and success in the terms that some people want to look at it, um, I see a responsibility, we see a responsibility, my employees see a duty uh, by the nature of shared purpose and uniting the world, shared purpose of connecting people and uniting the world. And uh, I have every freedom from our corporation to do what we think is the right thing. And what's hard about it is that it is not without its... Um, without its issues, right? I mean, you take a position on anything nowadays and the social media world lights up with negative, uh, you know, haters are gonna hate, and boy, do they. Uh, and so immigration and, and things, you know, things like that, you know, because of my heritage, become identity politics, right? So you're quickly discontinued. Uh, things are taken out of context uh, all the time. But you know what, if, if we're not building and showing 
our next generation of leaders that you are in this room, that you should be certainly profitable but principled, that we shouldn't think about those social causes, regardless of what they are, whatever extreme, that you can't voice it. And I'm always very, very careful to not make pronouncements that are my bias. You know, if it's my opinion, you will know that it's my opinion. Uh, but there's just, oh, it's, we teach a lot of things, ethics and morals and values. I'm telling you, the intersection um, that you come to a fork in the road where you have to make a decision on something is a difficult one. And it's situational. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with guns or anything. I just, whatever your choice is. But when there's a shooting and one of your pilots, a family member, loses a daughter who's 14 years old, I can't stand by and say nothing. I won't stand by and say nothing. And despite, you know, one person came to our annual meeting and just berated me, Warren Buffett said this, how dare you as a CEO take a personal approach, you said it was, I said, you know, it had nothing to do with politics, it had nothing to do with guns, that was purely personal. Somebody lost a loved one. I can't stand by, I won't stand by, and, I, and the team, that the family that I belong to won't let that happen either, and so I think we need more of that. Thoughtful, not so much identity politics, not so much bias, but you know what, on the right things, we have a big crisis coming with this caravan uh, coming. I mean, you know, the social and economic instability around us is awful. This, this world is interconnected. You know that because you're growing up in an environment. It is so interconnected that something happens, it's going to affect the U.S. and there's going to be all hell to pay. So we will continue to work with all the right folks to see anything that we can add to that. Uh, the political issues, immigration policies, that we'll let politicians manage with that. I'm just there to pick up whatever pieces I can and I have the full support of my United family and our board. And I think that's important to have. But again, importantly, you build that level of credibility. You build that goodwill by doing the things that you're all learning to do here, right? Strategy, involvement, leadership, all those sorts of things. But there's a, such a big human component to all of this. And don't ever forget that. Know who you are. Put yourself in the right situations because you will face decisions in your life, like I said before, where you have to choose. And how you choose and when you choose, there will be detractors. There's no question. But so damn the torpedoes. Let's just do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. I haven't, I'm, in, I'm fortunate to be in that position that, what are you going to do? I mean, it's like, you send me home to my family that I don't see very often? Gosh. <laughs> and my wife probably has something to say about that. <laughs> so I want to I sneak in one more quick question before we turn it over to the audience. Here we have a class coming in here soon. So, yeah. One of the questions we often reflect on here at the GSB and, and that I think a lot about is this question of why should people follow you? How do you respond to that question? Why should people follow you? Um, I think I, I, I have all these little silly sayings. I always say proof, not promise. It's like, listen, I'll stand in front of you. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. And then you don't have to do a darn thing because all you're going to see is proof of what I just told you. And for the, the time I've been here, I can honestly stand in front of my entire United family and our share owners increasingly in front of our customers uh, as we do more in that space. But I said, is there anything ever I have told you that we haven't delivered on? And it's hard to say that, but I don't say things publicly that we're not going to deliver on. We're very careful and, and review everything we're, we're going to say, but it's important. That's, that's why people follow you because they talk to each other. You telling someone, you need to follow me because I'm the man, I'm the boss, or I'm the smart, or I did all these things at this other company, all that's part of the equation, but every human needs 
a personal connection, a personal desire, a, a heart and a mind connection that drives someone to what I generally call, you know, discretionary effort. This is a business where, you know, I have 90, they're spread all over the world. A gate agent back in the back corner of some airport in, in you know, in Turkey, um, I have no control over her and what she's doing. All I have is the communications that we've done, the, the feeling of family, the shared purpose and mission, all of those superlatives and all those things that people do in business. Because then that person, just like when raising children, once you know, you're, all your parents have let you go, mostly. Um, <laughs> um, and you're left to make your own decisions. Are you making the right decisions? Some yes, some not. And so the, the why you should follow me is not a question I ask. It's like, let me show you, let me prove to you, and then people follow in droves. I mean, they really do. It's a really powerful thing when you capture the hearts and minds of folks. How you do it versus how I do it, that's what you have to figure out because there's no one way of doing it. And you have a lot of talented folks and faculty that'll tell you all those different things. But my view is you gotta know who you are. And for God's sake, another thing I say, swing easy. Um, we try too hard sometimes. I mean, guys in particular, you know, they get that deep voice when you ask a question. Well, let me tell you, sir, I'll be like, relax. And I say swing easy because if you, if you play golf, uh, particular tennis, if you see the professionals, they make that effort, you know, effortless, right? Their swing is effortless. We in our career sometimes try a little too hard, especially early on. Be the person that someone pulls aside and says, hey, Oscar, you might want to try this versus that. Right? You got to be that person that people are willing to. If I have a, a, a guiding principle uh, or fact of something that's been done that I've been so fortunate to have is that around, across my career, someone's always pulled you aside, especially when you thought you were all that. Right? I've been, you know, my old man. I was the youngest of this and the youngest of that and all that. But then somebody, key point, if I could, uh, one boss. It's just a, it's a pointed story. I'm sitting at a review. I just, I'm a 26-year-old kid. I went from this level at, at one company to this level at Coca-Cola. And I'm just feeling everything. And I think everyone around me is kind of stupid because, you know, I'm the smartest thing in the world. Six months in, my boss pulls me and we have this performance review and he says, oh, these one, hey, you exceeded our expectations. I took a risk on you. You know, you've been killing it, really. You're crushing it before that word was important. <laughs> then he says, and he closes kind of the book and he pulls aside and goes, but if I could tell you something on a more personal basis. And I'm like, he wants me to date his daughter or something probably, right? <laughs> now he said, and this is critical, he said, you know what? You're really good, but you're not yet good, as good as you think you are. And I'm like, oh, excuse me? <laughs> that sounded kind of like negative. <laughs> <laughs> And, and just, you know, it's like, you're not yet as good as you think you are. And I walked out of there, went through all those seven stages of anger, all of those things that people do, um, but it was critical. And a long life, you've got to find the right person that has that desire. Remember, sharing is caring. And that made a huge difference because I'd walked into an environment where I thought I was all that. I was the youngest and everything. Well, I, rec I recognized the people around me were incredibly deeply knowledgeable and experiencing pieces where my energy could be better affected. And, and it's guided me many things like that. So always make sure, and, and, and don't ask people like, hey, tell me something bad about myself, right? You just gotta act that way. Um, and find people, love people around you, give them the liberty. Give them the liberty to be honest with you. 
you will find more often than not, when somebody tells you something negative and you go, hey honey, this jerk at work said this about me, and your spouse will go, well, honey, <laughs> it's an important thing, so. Yeah, no, um, we'd like to take a few questions from sure. the audience if that's okay. Hi, my name is Edward Silva. Uh, thank you, Oscar. I'm an MBA student here at uh, the GSB. And my question is, where within United do the new, creative, even crazy ideas come from, and what are you doing specifically to foster them? Um, they, well, they come from this listening thing. Um, it's amazing how there's really cool leading edge innovation, and then there's just basic things that we just need to do right and better. And so most of our people uh, focus on the, the latter. It's like just simple things, like this boarding thing I discussed. And so getting input from that. Uh, on the innovation side, we, we started what all of you around here know, but it isn't often as prevalent in big 100-year-old industrial companies like mine, um, the concept of fast failure, right? Big companies employ people like you to do all the analytics and the and this and, and all the studies and all these things and about an idea, and you go months into it, and then somebody determines it's a go or a no-go, and then maybe you try it or you don't, uh, but you've wasted so much time. It's like somebody has kind of a cool idea, it's like, go. And so we built a digital sort of uh, a group. It's actually a separate building, just for many reasons. But you go in there, and it's the objective in, that, in those rooms is just bring ideas, put them to, and, and bring them up and see how well they scale. And, and it's amazing how many things take hold, but how energetic that is. And now, in our company, it's cool to come up with ideas. Before, it was like, well, management doesn't like it. You're, you're talking back. So part of it is culture, but also part of providing uh, an environment, but more importantly, acting on that environment. So once, again, back to proof, not promise. It's like, you know, what, so if you have an idea and it's come to, you, are, I am taking you everywhere I go and showing your mug everywhere. It's like, his idea, this is the guy that did it, this is what he does. I mean, we have so many wonderful histories that we tell about our company. So creating that culture, and all of you are probably more familiar with it, because if you live and work around here, that's kind of, it's, it's easier to do that in a smaller, younger company. 100-year-old companies just don't do that. My, the tenure of my workforce, the level of education, all of those things are subject, but never underestimate the power of human caring, human engagement, and human experience. It makes a big difference, especially when it comes time to dealing with you as customers. Hi, my name is Jorge Cueto, and I'm a first-year MBA. My question is related to work culture as well. What do you think is necessary to create a more inclusive work environment for Latinos, as well as for people from other underrepresented groups, including women, black people, LGBTQ people, and undocumented immigrants? Did we miss anybody on that list? Um, <laughs> veterans, veterans, uh, uh, invisible uh, d uh, disabilities like autism, uh, the biggest and best supporter, I think, of Special Olympics that we come to United, because I believe in that whole breadth. Yes, it's my heritage and my natural aspect. Uh, I'll tell you, diversity and inclusion, two words. Diversity and inclusion, they're two different terms. Diversity has become, uh, we made progress. Um, it's numeric, metric-oriented progress. I have the largest percentage of female pilots in the world in aviation. Yay! It's 8% but it's the best, I relax, right? No, diversity is just not about numbers. How are my women of color, for instance? But more importantly, back to the other word, inclusive, 
I go see my women pilots, and I said, hey, yay, did you hear? You're the, you're the largest percentage in the industry. Do you think they celebrate that? No. Because when I ask them, what else can we do better? There's always a list of things. And those list of things are on the inclusive aspect of it, right? Am I involved? Do you value me? These microaggressions of, of stopping people. It's like, do you know that women get cut off in meetings more than anyone? And you tell that to a guy, he's like, no, that doesn't happen. Watch. And you go back and watch, it's like, dang. We do, do the, we do things like that. And so um, part of the thing that we're doing, and Latinos, Latinos, by the way, the millennial thing we all talk about, guess what the demographic looks like very soon of millennials versus boomers, right? Millennials bigger, next year. 73 million versus 72 million. Guess what the percentage of millennials are that are Latino in this country? Almost half. So I don't go tell you, you gotta do this, and you gotta hire Latinos. I tell you, it is an economic force that is of massive proportions. Why Dara from Uber and Dennis Mullenberg were in the meeting with me is because they recognize that it's a, a two plus trillion dollar market, Latinos are, and 56 is in the transportation leisure business. So it's a ripe market, right? Where you're all looking for growth and for your companies and all that stuff. Well, you go fish where the fish are, and the fish have a little spicy salsa next to them, sort of thing. <laughs> I can, I can say that. Um, but it grows, it, it comes across all cultures and everything. And so, and so we, I am, there's just so much to be done. Um, I'll tell you, and I'm talking about it tonight in San Francisco with women in the workplace. Uh, my next mission is to some degree, because we, we have one of the highest percentage of women in the workplace. And we all, again, the numbers all work out for us in a way, not the point. Harassment, sexual harassment for our flight attendants, for people, is still an issue. There's still idiots that sit next to people and think they can touch, think they can do and ask and say things that they shouldn't. And there's still people that sit next to someone and don't want to sit next to someone because of their race, color, sex, or creed. Those people have no time, nowhere, no business. You can go fly elsewhere because that's just not something we're going to do. Hard to do in this, in this market because I have to remove them from the aircraft, right? And then we have that whole other issue. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to close by doing a quick lightning round, if possible. Sure. So this or that style. Aisle or window? Oh. Window, because if you sit next to me, I mean, an aisle, because if you sit next to me, you just get abused. I mean, people reach over. Customers and employees will reach over you, stand in front of you. So I always set the window so I can just talk to people and not disrupt my fellow flying person next to me. And yes, I do fly my own airline all the time. Um, Got to eat what you cook. Not all airline executives do that. <laughs> Coke or Pepsi? Oh, you know what? <laughs> Coke was my last time, so... Classic Coke, no additives. I've watched what goes into other products, and so I, <laughs> the stuff in regular Coke is at least uh, God-made, right? It's natural. <laughs> it's sugar, but. Planes or trains? Oh, yeah, I gotta, I gotta go with my family, planes. Adventure or relaxation? Oh, God, adventure. It's like, <laughs> I don't know what that other word, I do know what that word is. After <laughs> I've done some adventure something. <laughs> Kardashians or The Bachelor? <laughs> I'd label that the fall of Western civilization as we know it. <laughs> NorCal or SoCal? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
am a SoCal boy, yeah, yeah, yeah. no question. Love it up here. I got engaged here. I, I went running, walking, jogging. It's hilly, I forget how hilly it is uh, downtown. Um, but the, uh, the St. Francis Hotel is where I got engaged, and so it always brings a lot of memory. The Carnelian Room, probably most of you don't even remember, used to be the top of the B of A Tower. That's when I started my way through my, uh, I thought I was so confident in my request to my wife to join me in marriage that I couldn't get two words out for a while. So San Francisco will always be close in that regard. And of course, the last one, Delta or American? No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer. It has been a pleasure speaking with you, Oscar. Please join me and thank you. listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by Patrick DePrace Gallagher of the MBA class of 2019. Lily Sloan composed our theme music and produced this episode. You can find more of this podcast at our website, gsb.stanford.edu. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB.